What's up, everyone? It's Saturday, which means you're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing very, very well. Sorry we had some technical difficulties. We're a little late. It's all my fault, um, but we're up and running. <laughs> well, a few weeks it was my fault um, because I did a software update on my computer because there's a software update every month. And yeah. my computer, like my computer wasn't connecting to my uh, camera. Anyway, conversations about technical difficulties are a lot of fun. The and worst. a great way to open a show. Hell <laughs> <So>. yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited for today's show. Look, uh, we cover a lot of heavy topics. Uh, we discuss them in depth. We're going to have a little more of a lighthearted show today. I think everyone can use it. I mean, lighthearted, I think with the exception of um, our decode segments a little bit. Yours is a little yeah. more lighthearted than mine. Yeah. yeah. Mine's You're going to talk about voting. Yours yeah. is a lot of fun, actually. Lots of great video elements for that. I'm going to talk about the uh, economic situation for the vast majority of Americans while Donald Trump trolls us on Twitter with, like, this roller coaster ride of messaging when it comes to stimulus. Um, and then later, we're going to have Wozni Lambre on the show. And he's fantastic. Um, host of Woke Bros with Nando Vila. You guys should check out yes. that podcast. And uh, we're going to watch funny videos of Trump and react to them. That's that's what that's, the interview is going to be today. That's yeah. It's not <laughs> about like you know some obscure like socialist theory. We're going to have fun just laughing at uh, America's favorite president, <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> it's my favorite line maybe ever uttered in the history of mankind. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh, I'm very insane. very excited about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I didn't really have anything planned for our, um, you know, opening banter segment. I just feel like this week has been, I'm just tired of the news. I'm tired of this news cycle. I, I'm tired of people pretending like they care about Donald Trump's COVID condition. You know, like 24-7, yeah. like speculation about his condition. He's still sick, guys. That's it. That's the end of the story. Let's move on. Yeah. Chris Christie's still sick. I guess Stephen Miller's sick. They're all sick. Um, there was a vice presidential debate, which was one of the most uh, just awful things I've ever watched in my life. I mean, it was, so uh, it was just the most cynical, uh, just disgusting, pointless thing I've ever seen. It was like one of the bleakest political documents maybe in American history. <laughs> so, yeah, the news you know, cycle I sucks. It really does. And so, you know, I was telling our producer, Kale, that like the m most difficult thing I'm experiencing right now in terms of like doing my job is feeling any type of motivation because the news cycle is awful. All the stories that are being emphasized right now don't really matter. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's just it's it's amazing how all it takes is a little bit of a Trump circus and everyone's focusing on the squirrel. No one's focusing on the issues that actually matter to Americans. You know, that's basically what my uh, decode segment is about today. Like people are hungry right now and you have these like games like Trump trolling people about the stimulus. It's not funny. And it, he's kind of funny. Uh, I don't know. Go big. Go big. Go big on the negotiations, people. <laughs> yeah, we're going to give you all the details on that. But just going back to the VP debate, I think you're absolutely right. I started off with high hopes for Kamala Harris, even though, you know, there are things about her prosecutorial record and other issues with her that, you know, I've brought up in the past. I felt, okay, you know, she she's a former prosecutor. I've seen the way that she cross-examines people during these uh, uh, congressional hearings. And so I really did have some hope that she would be 
aggressive during that debate, but she wasn't. There were so no. many opportunities squandered during that whole event. And yeah, Republicans don't care about following the rules. They're going to interrupt you. So what are you going to yeah. do? You're just going to like play victim the entire time? Interrupt his yeah. ass. What are Complain you doing? Complain to the mods. Yeah. No, and I mean, I, people underestimate Mike Pence as a kind of political figure in the sense that, you know, he, first, first of all, he's just been kind of absent for the last year, or it seems for the most part. So people have forgotten. But Mike Pence was a conservative talk radio host uh, when he was a congressman in the 90s, when conservative talk radio kind of really became the the force that it is today. Um, so he is incredibly skilled at the sort of rhetorical tricks and spin and he knows all the arguments he's had them a million times like you cannot get him on the you can't own him in 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 an easy way like you you have to be better than that and and he did this he did the clever thing which was just constantly paint like push Kamala into a corner and Kamala was just never able to get out of it because she was never able to defend any of what she actually believed in other than just kind of being like no actually i i love fracking i you know i actually you know yeah. i'm not gonna do any like it's just like it's instead of like defending the real principles that she may or may not believe in i mean that, that's the it's another question but like she couldn't she couldn't she could never just like give a full-throated defense of of herself and her record and it's always just kind of she always felt like she was running from something while pence was just like Hunting her down and 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 yeah, and chasing playing her offense. In the yeah, playing offense. I mean, not, I mean yeah. to the extent that these things even matter. I mean, the VP debates, I doubt move anyone ever. You know, um, but like to the extent that we can like play CNN pundits and say like who won on points, like if it was like a boxing match or something. Like I think Pence clearly just dominated her. But he uh, did. He but did. Yeah. And, but like. That's honestly the problem with how Democrats debate. They allow themselves to be in the position of always having to play defense when, no, I mean, like you're dealing with a a target-rich environment. There Mm -hmm. are so many Trump-era policies that are indefensible, right? So why not play offense? Why not call him out on those things? And why not clown on him? Honestly, like I wish there was a little more of that in the Democratic Party. It might come across as a personal attack because it is a personal attack, but I would bring up mother, right? I would find the Achilles (laughs) heel and I would just keep stabbing at it. And I would would, clown. I would, the point is to make, to ridicule him and make him a laughing stock because rattle him. I mean, rattle him. Exactly. Because debate isn't just about substance. I think substance is actually a very small component of of the debate. There's Mm -hmm. a psychological component to it that I personally think is the best component of debating. And, um, you know, you do enough oppo research and you have enough, like, you know, political weapons to, like, lob at him throughout the debate, you're going to win. I don't know. how How did Kamala not bring up the fact that Pence is responsible for the largest HIV outbreak in American history since like the AIDS crisis of the 1980s? Like that's that's even like in sort of like the liberal limited kind of liberal ideological worldview. Like that is a that should be just such a thing to hang around his neck, you know, closing down so many Planned Parenthoods that there was no STD clinics in rural Indiana to the point where it created this giant HIV outbreak because people weren't getting SCD tests because there was literally no place to get them in, in some rural areas, right. you know? And it's like that, that fits into the, that's not like, you know, advocating for the green new deal or Medicare for all. That's like a purely liberal thing that she could tie around his neck and she, she didn't even do it anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was really strange. And I've realized that she might be really great at um, questioning someone the way a prosecutor would, 
But debating, I guess, is a different type of skill. And it is. she didn't do too well during the Democratic primary debates. Uh, and I, I expected, you know, pretty good performances from her. Um, she, you know, she got completely destroyed by, uh, I hate using that word, but it just came naturally because of, like, what you see on YouTube all the time. But, you know, yeah. she uh, was dismantled uh, by Tulsi Gabbard, of all people, yeah. on the issue um, of, I believe it was foreign policy. I don't, I don't even remember at this point, but it was yeah. bad. She didn't look so it was great. Bad. Um, yeah. yeah, not good. Very bad. Very, um, very bad. but anyway, you know, Nando, I've been thinking about buying some books. Yes. But I don't know where to buy any books from. I have some, where can I buy books? That I can, from? I can give them to you or you can <gasps> join the Verso book club. <laughs> it's a new month and we have new Verso book club selections. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month and includes all of Verso's ebooks. The comrade tier is $20 a month, and if you join in October, you'll get the Verso Book of Feminism. Revolutionary Words from Four Millennia of Rebellion, edited by Jesse Kindig, A Kick in the Belly, Women, Slavery, and Resistance by Stella Dadzi, An Event, Perhaps, A Biography of Jacques Derrida by Peter Salmon, A New Edition of The Politics of Friendship by Jacques Derrida, the subject of the previous book, <laughs> The New Verso no Notebook, A Line Notebook with a Classic Verso Cover, plus okay, 15 additional ebooks. I love it. Jacques, I love it. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Derrida? Or is it? Is there an accent? On, like, is the emphasis on the A? Or I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see an acento on his name. But no. um, I do like that that previous book title. That was really good. What was it again? A Kick um, in the Belly? Or, uh, oh, no. An event, perhaps. <laughs> an event, perhaps. Yes, that, that perhaps. one. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, why don't we talk about our decode segments? Uh, today, I wanted to focus a little bit on the economy because uh, Trump has taken Americans on quite a ride on the topic of stimulus. So let's discuss where Americans are financially. Tens of millions of Americans are still jobless during this pandemic. And what's worse is the fact that many of these jobs are, un are, are expected to uh, be permanent job losses. The longer the pandemic continues, the longer these layoffs, uh, you know, persist, it's, it's much more likely that these will be permanent job losses. And so, um, what's interesting is after the CARES Act and the regulations that came along with the CARES Act, expired on September 30th, all of a sudden you have all of these various corporations and companies that took uh, some of the financial relief from the CARES Act, laying off tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of their employees. The airline industry was certainly hit the hardest. And in the next video, you'll get a sense of just how much. Thousands of airline industry workers are out of a job, hoping Congress will send a financial lifeline their way. Many of them are being furloughed or laid off today after talks on Capitol Hill to extend government relief programs amid the pandemic stalled. Across the board, an estimated 45,000 employees are being affected by these job cuts. So the unemployment rate is still insanely high at 7.9%. And in the latest jobs report from the Labor Department, it was clear that the uh, 
I guess, recovery from the pandemic um, is slowing down considerably. But some people are delusional enough uh, to completely deny the reality of this moment, like the guy you're about to hear from. Uh, layoffs at Disney, um, Shell, um, you know, the airline furloughs, um, Goldman Sachs with 500 employees being laid off. You're not you're not too worried about unemployment? Not yet. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, we've had some bad headlines, but, you know, keep in mind those numbers sound terrible, but they're not enormous in the context of the size of the total U.S. labor market. Oh, okay, great. So why don't we take a look at uh, the full context of the U.S. labor market? Because it turns out that the situation is pretty crappy and uh, it's more than just a few negative headlines. So um, don't listen to what cool guy economist Michael Darda has to say. Focus on the numbers. And I'm not talking about how the stock market is doing because the stock market is completely detached from what the real economy is communicating uh, about the American people and where they stand today in regard to their finances. So when it comes to the more recent layoffs, that list includes Disney eliminating 28,000 employees connected to the coronavirus theme park shutdowns, United Airlines and American Airlines collectively planning to put 32,000 workers on furlough and ensure Allstate cutting almost 4,000 jobs. Many small businesses have shut down. They're not expected to make a return. Uh, the Labor Department, as I mentioned earlier, had released new jobs numbers and found that there are more Americans filing for unemployment than was previously expected. So for instance, first-time claims for unemployment benefits totaled 840,000 last week, higher than expected in another sign that the spike in job growth over the last summer um, has cooled heading into Election Day. Economists surveyed by Dow Jones had been expecting 825,000 new claims, honestly, as if that's any better. And uh, following that labor report, it became very clear to anyone who's paying any attention to the real economy as opposed to the stock market that the job recovery has slowed down. And when it comes to the job losses that are permanent, the situation is getting very serious. So for instance, nearly 3.8 million, 3.8 million people lost their jobs permanently in September. And that's again, according to the Labor Department's latest monthly survey, almost twice as many as the height of the pandemic job losses in April. So, um, Cool guy economist, are we uh, giving you enough context to convince you that the situation's pretty dire for the majority of Americans right now? I can give you more. Um, the poor do keep getting poorer, uh, especially because many of them haven't even recovered from the last recession. So let's take a look at that graphic. Even in brutal recessions of the early 1980s, when the unemployment rate topped 10%, less than a quarter of job seekers had remained out of work longer than six months. What we're actually experiencing now is that uh, job losses uh, end up lasting much longer than previous recessions. And that puts people at a downward trajectory when it comes to their earning power because of the way this entire economy is set up. So for instance, in the aftermath of the Great Recession, nearly half of all job seekers had been unemployed long-term. Many younger people dropped out of the job market altogether, while long-term unemployment for workers older than 50 stayed at high levels for years. In fact, millennials uh, certainly hadn't fully recovered from the 2008 recession, and then the pandemic hit. 
And as you can imagine, uh, that creates a, a much more difficult situation for them uh, to dig themselves out of this hole. And keep in mind, many of them are dealing with an insane amount of student loan debt to boot. So um, millennials have an incredibly small amount of wealth compared to other generations in this country. So uh, there was some new data from the Federal Reserve that should, I want to say shock everyone, but honestly, if you've been paying attention to how this system is set up, it shouldn't be shocking. The millennial generation born between 1981 and 1996 controlled just 4.6% of U.S. wealth, even though they are the largest in the workforce with 72 million members. So many of them are underpaid. Many of them are underemployed, trying to uh, basically piece together several jobs in order to earn a full-time income. But even that full-time income doesn't make enough money to basically keep up with the cost of living in many of the uh, major cities across the country. So overall, a small percentage of companies uh, cut salaries when it comes to senior executives. But even among businesses that did cut the boss's pay, two-thirds of the chief executives took reductions that were equivalent to only 10% or less of their 2019 compensation. So while the average American worker has been hit hard by this pandemic, that doesn't stop executives and CEOs from shielding themselves from some of the pain that many of us are feeling right now. For instance, Oscar Munoz, who in May became United's executive chairman after serving as chief executive, did not get a salary from March 10th through June 30th, which amounted to a 610,000 pay cut from the $2 million salary he's being paid. But the reduction was little less than 3% of the $22.2 million Mr. Munoz took home in 2019. Remember, the salary for these executives is nothing. They make the real money when it comes to stock options, when it comes to uh, other investments. That's where the real cash is. And if you take a look at the stock market, it's abundantly clear that it is, in fact, detached from what people are experiencing in the real economy. The stock market's doing really well. And as long as these executives hold on to their stock options, and as long as they're able to keep taking money from the Federal Reserve and artificially inflate uh, the price of their shares, they're able to make a ton of money even during this pandemic, even while they're laying off tens of thousands of their own employees. And, um, you know, let's also talk about bonuses a little bit, because these people wouldn't be stupid enough. They wouldn't be callous enough to pay themselves bonuses during this year, right? I don't know. Let's take a look. A new survey shows that despite some of this gloomy news, 66% of companies still intend to pay bonuses this year. I mean, were you guys really surprised? Were you surprised? Of course, of course they're going to pay themselves bonuses. They don't care. I mean, part of the problem in this country has been the insane amount of income and wealth inequality. That didn't just happen overnight. It happened with all of these executives and all these major companies essentially underpaying their workers while cutting corners, paying themselves more and more money each year, paying themselves more and more stock options each year, while trying to justify the so-called cost-cutting that specifically impacts their own workers, the very people who made them wealthy in the first place. And uh, while all this pain and suffering takes place, uh, the richest 
you know, all the pain and suffering takes place. The richest people in the world keep paying themselves and shielding themselves from this pandemic. Um, All we need is a president to troll us about the possibility of financial relief. And that's exactly what Donald Trump did this week. Even though it was a long shot, there was still some hope that potentially a deal could come together. But the president, after having a conference call with Republican leaders and Steven Mnuchin, put out this tweet that surprised everybody on Capitol Hill. It makes it clear that there will not be a stimulus deal before the November elections. And this is the important part of this uh, uh, multi-part tweet that the president uh, put out. He claims, he says that I have instructed my representatives to stop negotiating until after the election, when immediately after I win, we will pass a major stimulus bill that focuses on hardworking Americans and small businesses. That's right. Hopped up on steroids uh, and an ever-expanding ego, Donald Trump decided to troll the American people in regard to the possibility of another stimulus bill. Now, why do I say troll the American people? Well, because soon after he changed his mind, but I don't want anyone to think he changed his mind because he realized that he'd be hurting average Americans. He doesn't really care too much about them. What he does care about, though, is the stock market, because it is the one and only thing that he has been able to cite as uh, a symbol of his success, as a symbol of his economic intelligence, even though, again, the stock market is not representative of how average Americans are doing. When you look at the individuals who are invested in the stock market, over 80% of them are in the top 10%. So if the stock market's doing well, it's not necessarily positively impacting the finances of average Americans, Um, actually quite far from it. But He realized, oh no, this tweet, it did bad things. Very bad, not good to the stock market. After the president's initial announcement, stocks fell sharply with the Dow Jones Industrial Average ending down 376 points. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell warned that there could be unnecessary hardship if Congress and the White House don't approve more economic relief. And so on the same day, later that day, Donald Trump changed his tune, writing, the House and Senate should immediately approve $25 billion for airline payroll support and $135 billion for Paycheck Protection Program for small business. Both of these will be fully paid for with unused funds from the CARES Act. Have the money, have this money, I will sign now. And then he followed it with, COVID relief negotiations are moving along. Go big, go big. And now all of a sudden, Donald Trump is saying, you know what, that $2.2 trillion that the Democrats want for their stimulus plan, maybe that's not enough. Maybe we need to go bigger. So yesterday, uh, he put out his own version of stimulus. Uh, Don't get too excited because I don't trust him or believe him at all. But Trump, according to the latest announcement, Trump favors a broad economic aid package. He suggested during a radio interview earlier on Friday he could support a stimulus plan bigger than the $2.2 trillion amount Democrats are seeking. Now, the Trump administration did put forth their own proposal, $1.8 trillion stimulus offer to Democrats, but they spurned it and said it didn't do enough to tackle the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. It contains $1,200 direct payments, to Americans, of course, $4,000 weekly federal employment benefits, and significant aid to states. Now, let me be clear, if he actually does push legislation like this or better than this, awesome. The problem is he's erratic. Uh, He is 
obviously not in the right state of mind. He's all over the place. He's saying all sorts of crazy lunatic things. Um, So I have a hard time feeling relieved at the current messaging from Donald Trump because he shoots from the hip and you don't know what he's going to propose next. What I do know is that in all of this chaos, in all of this drama, while so many Americans are feeling so much heartache, so much struggle, there has only been one voice of reason, one person who actually speaks to those issues. We had an opportunity to get him elected as president of the United States. But unfortunately, uh, we can only rely on his tweets to make us feel as though we're being heard. And of course, that's Bernie Sanders. He tweeted the following. In the last few days, Trump has been for a stimulus package against it and for it. What will the stable genius say next? All I know is every unemployed worker needs $600 a week. Working class families need $2,000 a month. And every American needs the same health care as Trump. That's absolutely right. The only problem is we don't have a presidential candidate who believes in that message. And that's the real problem. But for now, uh, we're just going to sit by and see what Trump is going to say next. And anytime he has any type of positive message in regard to financial stimulus for average Americans, it's usually followed by Mitch McConnell, the turtle man himself, whining and crying about how it's just too expensive, too much spending, unless, of course, it comes to bailing out corporations. In that case, he's in favor of it. Yeah. You know, uh, this this segment reminded me of uh, the fact checking talk we had was it last week or the week before um, where because um, I remember when Trump was running in 2016. One of the things he kept on saying was that the, the unemployment figure, folks, it's fake. It's fake. You know, and like the fact checkers like were freaked out. But there's like there's like some degree of truth to that idea that the, the way the unemployment number is calculated is problematic, to say the least. It's like it's yes. only the people who are actively looking for a job who can't find one, but that doesn't count for people who like quit looking for a job just because they, they're, they're hopeless or for whatever other reason, you know? So like that, that unemployment, those unemployment numbers, like even that this like 7% number, which like, as you said, is like really high right now. It, it, it probably doesn't even tell the, the whole picture um, in any, in any way. Um, it's an and, underestimate for sure. Yeah, totally. Like, you're absolutely right about that. And and this like this talk about like all the CEOs like you know paying themselves and and, and all that stuff. Um, it's just it, I just can't stop thinking that th- it's so different from what it was twenty years ago or in the nineties when the sort of ideological underpinnings of that kind of thing were so much more self confident, right? Like there were there were true believers that the system was you know, good and righteous, even, and the, even as like CEO pay sword, like people were out there defending, like, this is actually good because it, you know, spurs innovation and, and it motivates people to, you know, take risks and all that stuff. And like now no one makes those arguments anymore. Like they're just like, it's right. just like, no, give, give me the money and I'm going to shut up and you're going to shut up and no one's going to do anything about it. So there is kind of an ideological void. Um, so you get that feeling that we're like at the end of an era. I mean, that's like what's so frustrating and exciting at the same time about this moment is like the the economic collapse is so much more broad and widespread than we can even wrap our minds around and that we can even quite comprehend in like as we're kind of sitting through it in the in the early days of it. You know, it's going to take years to really understand what the effects that it's going to have. But the reality is that the ideological kind of superstructure uh, above it is just gone. Like no one is making the case mm-hmm. that this is actually good. 
anymore. Um, so that's like, that's the opportunity yeah. in a way. Yeah. I remember, you know, in a very specific context when it comes to presidents at universities, uh, I would complain about how much they pay themselves as they're increasing tuition for their students. And I get it. If they take a pay cut, it's not going to solve the tuition problem, but it's mostly symbolic. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, incredibly insulting to pay yourself a million dollars a year while students are going into an insane amount of debt uh, because of tuition costs. And I remember someone debating me on that issue said, well, they need competitive pay. No, they don't. Why? Are, are they like, like so talented that they need, like the only thing that they're talented in is fundraising, asking yeah. for money. And yeah. so that's, that's all it's about. And I personally don't think that's like a, an incredibly unique, important um, skill set that warrants no. paying a, a college, uh, a college university uh, president, a college or university president, a million dollar salary. Like it's just, it makes no sense. Uh, but you're right. I think that the this has hit so many different people. You're right. The economic, uh, I guess, just economic meltdown has impacted yeah. so many different people, including individuals who were upper middle class. You know, I remember reading a New York Times piece about this, you know, group of highly paid, you know, originally highly paid individuals. One of them was a, a corporate lawyer. And she's like, I, I can't pay my bills now and I can't find another job. Um, that I'm qualified for because yeah. she's overqualified for a lot of the jobs that are available and the jobs that are available do not pay a high enough wage for her to pay her bills. Like it's insane what people are dealing with right now. For 800,000 jobs lost a week. I mean, I think that at the height of the great recession, uh, you know, after the financial crisis, it was something like 800,000 jobs a month. And at the time that seemed like a free for all, you know, and now it's, now it's 800,000 jobs a week. You know, it's, it's just it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and, and something has like, something is going to happen. Like something big is going to happen. Um, the question is what, like, it's, I mean, I mean, maybe like there's just gonna, they're just gonna like kind of manage this decline, uh, indefinitely. But I, I just don't see how, like, I don't see like kind of the, the ideological buy-in, uh, for something like that. Like something big is going to happen. Whether it's, I mean, again, it's like that old cliche, like it's going to probably either be socialism or barbarism, you know, um, barbarism has a pretty big head start right now. But, um, you know, yeah. that's something's going to happen. Like, it's it's just, it, we, you can't go on like this. Like, this is just, it's, it's so unprecedented that something new has to has to emerge from it. So, yeah, totally agree. All right, let's have All some right. fun, Nando. Okay, the yes, doom and please. gloom, it's, it's over. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, in case you guys haven't noticed, it's the quadrennial extravaganza we like to call the presidential election. And you know what that means. Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast of Hamilton going on Jimmy Fallon with a very important message. Yeah. Oh! Our nation is asking to hear your voice. Oh! November is coming and so is the joy. Oh! Now I've said this before and it matters a lot. Oh! Do not throw away your shot. Oh! I know it takes time and to sacrifice. Oh! It's fun to vote once to not vote twice. Oh! If you're hearing my voice, you know what to do. My future depends on this. Yours does too. Do not throw away your shot to vote. I guess it's better than Tim Kaine in the membrane. Actually, I don't know. Tim Kaine in the membrane might be better. But yeah, 
so Lin-Manuel Miranda was not the only one who got in on the action. Louis Vuitton got in on the action as the world of high fashion sashayed down the runway to get people to the polls. And this kind of thing is nothing new. I mean, who could forget this classic 1990 Rock the Vote ad starring the one and only Madonna? Dr. King, Malcolm X, freedom of speech is as good as sex. Abe, Lincoln, Jefferson, Tom, they didn't need the atomic bomb. We need beauty, we need art, we need government with art. Get in rhythm. Don't give up your freedom of speech. Power to the people is in our reach. Don't just sit there, let's get to it. Speak your mind, there's nothing to it. Vote! And if you don't vote, you're going to get a spanky. Cut. I actually think freedom of speech is better than sex. Uh, so, yeah. But this week, we got perhaps the strangest iteration of the celebrities begging regular people to just vote genre when a bunch of them got naked for voting. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Ruffalo, um, put your clothes on. To be honest, I wish I could cover my hands with my boobs, but here we are. I'm here to talk to you about voting. Did you know that ballots could be naked? And if you don't do exactly what I tell you, your ballot could get thrown out. Yeah, I mean, it's it's they're, they're, it's obviously they're just getting desperate because despite their best efforts, the United States has one of the lowest voter turnout rates in the developed world. I mean, maybe if they just straight up had sex on camera, they might be able to get that percentage up a couple points. Um, but it makes you wonder what the Belgian celebrities are doing to get their fellow Belgians to Pokemon go to the polls. And concerns of Americans' lack of zeal for voting goes back several decades. I mean, take a look at this New York Times article from 1976, the year Jimmy Carter defeated Gerald Ford. The headline reads, Voter turnout has been steadily declining since 1960. And the author decries, The facts are clear and startling. American voting participation, never high compared with other democracies, has been declining steadily since 1960. In that year, 64% of the eligible voters turned out to give a razor-thin edge to John Kennedy over Richard Nixon. Since then, even though literacy tests, poll taxes, and many other impediments have been swept away, and despite vigorous registration drives, voting has continued to slip, dropping to 55% in the last presidential election, the lowest since the roaring and complacent 20s. The decline also coincides with the increase of mass exposure through television to the political process, but no one seems to know what effect that has had on turnout. And in the last presidential election between Hillary Clinton and America's favorite president, Donald Trump, had I did not vote been on the ballot, it would have won in a landslide. So trying to understand why Americans don't vote despite the fact that Josh Gad got naked is actually really important. Liberals chalk up the low turnout on technocratic problems. And if there were just a few technocratic fixes, turnout would soar. You've seen these arguments in the past, like, we vote on Tuesday instead of, say, Sunday. And there's also things like same-day voting registration or digital voting. And there is some merit to these arguments. I mean, making Election Day a national holiday would probably increase turnout. And it is true that in the last couple of decades, the Republican Party has waged an all-out war on voting, while the Democrats have been absolutely powerless to stop them. But it is unclear to me that if we had all the technocratic fixes in the world, U.S. voter turnout would shoot up to Swedish or Belgian levels. I mean, in that New York Times article, they talk about how they got rid of literacy tests, but turnout just kept on declining. So it seems to me that voter apathy goes much deeper than that. So the question is, why is that? 
Well, that 1976 New York Times article actually puts forth a pretty good theory. The alienation theory holds that after Vietnam and years of Watergate scandal and other political rot, the electorate is turned off, cynical, distrustful of government, uncertain that their votes make much difference. Support for this theory came recently from the Bipartisan Committee for the Study of the American Electorate. The committee, in a survey of non-voters by Peter D. Hart Research Associates, linked non-participation directly to feelings of alienation and said that even many well-informed were not voting. So when people talk about voter apathy, what they really mean is voter alienation, the bone-deep understanding that millions of mostly poor Americans have that no matter who they vote for, their lives won't fundamentally change. And if you zoom out from the insanity of the daily news cycle, you realize that they're more right than wrong. Since 1980, wages at the lower end of earners have actually declined 5%. Meanwhile, in that time, the 1% have seen almost all of the income gains. And this is despite the fact that Republicans and Democrats have basically passed the White House off to each other every eight years. And the U.S. is unique in the Western democracies and that it does not have a true labor-based party. Even at the height of labor power, the relationship between the unions and the Democratic Party was one of tenuous alliance. The Democratic Party was not a party of the trade unions. But still, when there was a powerful union movement in this country, the working class was democratic. As the unions have declined in, the, in power starting in the late 1970s, so has working class identification with the Democratic Party. And back in the heyday of the New Deal consensus, it could be said that the Democratic Party working with organized labor did deliver the goods for workers. The American proletariat of the 50s and 60s lived much more prosperous lives than basically at any time in its history. But that all changed once the Democrats embraced neoliberalism and abandoned labor starting in the 1970s. Since then, it's just been declined. So you can forgive the average working class voter for looking at the trends and concluding that neither party is really doing anything for them. And this hunch has actually been studied by fancy political scientists. In 2015, Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page conducted a study at Princeton University that looked at how people's policy preferences influenced politicians' decisions. You know, in an ideal democracy, say like in some theoretical ideal democracy, if a policy had 100% support from the public, it would have a 100% chance of being implemented by their elected leaders. And if a policy had 0% support, it would have 0% chance of being uh, implemented. So if you plotted that on an XY axis, it would be a perfect 45 degree angle. Well, here's what it looks like when they put the results into a chart. The line was totally flat. And then the researchers did the same study, but instead of regular people, they used economic elites. So same principle. How likely was a policy to pass if economic elites overwhelmingly supported it? Well, that line looks a lot more like a 45-degree angle. And here was the Princeton political scientist's conclusion to the study. Multivariate analysis indicates that economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy, while average citizens and mass-based interest groups have little or no independent influence. Which brings me back to the naked celebrities begging you to vote. Notice how they always just say that, vote. They don't see, they don't say what to vote for. They want you to believe that voting is good in and of itself. But that's not true. People vote when you give them something to vote for. 
Politics is about people exercising their power in their own interests. The American system hasn't really allowed that in a long time. I mean, what concrete policy can anyone point to that has meaningfully changed their economic well-being? The only thing that politicians offer in America is a spectacle and a sense of belonging on a team where the good guys, well, they're the evil ones. And in reality, what the parties offer is better or worse management of America's imperial decline. It is surely true that Democrats manage that decline more competently than the Republicans, but that isn't exactly an inspiring political message. What would, what would work better than celebrities getting naked? Well, if a politician ever ran on bread and butter issues that have majoritarian appeal and then actually delivered on those promises to actually help people live better lives. And I'm not trying to discourage people from voting. I want to be very clear. I'm not against electoral politics, but we should understand the real causes behind the lack of turnout. It's not that people are lazy. It's that they're smarter than people give them credit for. Yeah, I think I think you are absolutely right. If you ever listen to some of those podcasts where reporters will go over to uh, various swing states and talk to voters who people who don't ever vote, they're not even registered to vote, and they ask why. What you just said right now, every the case that you laid out is what they say that they don't feel that voting in any election is going to fundamentally improve their lives, and when you consider the resources involved in voting, right? And and I'm talking about the resource of time, um, the ability to, uh, you know, spend time in learning about the candidates, learning about ballot initiatives, you know, even though that's a direct vote. Um, it just doesn't make sense for a lot of people because they keep seeing the same outcome. I mean, when you think of how Obama campaigned in 2008 on this whole notion of hope and change, and how he seemed to be way further to the left than he ended up being, think about how disappointing that was for all of those first-time voters, the people who did show up, who did cast a ballot for for Mm -hmm. Obama, and then ended up with a president who uttered the words, uh, I want to go for, I want to look forwards. I don't want to look backwards uh, when it came to prosecuting the Bush administration for war crimes. Uh, The Dodd-Frank legislation to regulate Wall Street was weak sauce to say the least. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, yeah, it just discourages people from wanting to vote. And more importantly, when people are dealing with financial frustrations and they lack the representation they need in the federal government, it's incredibly insulting to think that putting out these videos of like celebrities doing salacious things is like all they need to be persuaded to show up to the polls. It doesn't work that way. Um, I watch those videos and like, yeah, they look goofy, but more than anything, the message is insulting. Yeah. Right. It's like, okay, well, why don't you talk about like the bread and butter issues that matter and make a case for why we need to go vote for a certain candidate. Like, I also don't get, like, the whole broad just vote. message of go vote. Just, just vote. But, like, but like I, I don't – if I was asked to be in one of those videos, I would say no if it was a broad message. I don't want you to just vote. I want mm-hmm. you to vote for the right candidate. I don't want you to I vote for the I want you to go vote for people. someone who represents you. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you, it's, you, you mentioned Obama who ran – yeah. Uh, a campaign that was based on change, right? Like that was the, his message, hope and change. And it, I mean, obviously, like almost every politician says that. But with Obama, it felt 
different. It felt more authentic, right? Because he was so different looking from everyone else who'd ever run for president. He was just sounded different. It, it, it all felt different in 2008. And he, like you said, he read much more left than any candidate we've had in a long time, um, at least from in, in the 2008 campaign. And if you look at the voting numbers of 2008, they were they were actually as high as they've been in decades, right? Voter ter- people felt like that they were actually voting for something, right? And that's how they got all this turnout. Turned out, I mean, obviously Obama turned out to be just kind of another status quo neoliberal, but um, and and that probably hardened people's cynicism in a way that is just was been absolutely disastrous. But had Obama like delivered the goods, the, the Democratic Party would have. Uh, become kind of a dominant political force for decades. Like that just, that's exactly what happened in the New Deal with FDR, right? Like FDR won the election. He delivered the goods. He improved people's lives. And the Democrats basically won elections uninterruptedly. They controlled the House and Senate for 60 years, you know, because people felt like the Democratic Party was delivered for them. You know, they, they gave them something concrete. You know, that they could point to Social Security, Medicare, like all these things, you know, like yeah, that, yeah. that created a situation where Democrats absolutely dominated American politics. I mean, people don't understand how much Democrats dominated American public, in politics. It's the same thing that we see now where Democrats are trying to be Republicans. Back then, Republicans tried to be Democrats like, you know, Eisenhower and Nixon, all these like re- Republican guys sounded like New Dealers, like they had embraced the New Deal liberal consensus because Democrats were so dominant. Um, So you have to deliver the goods, like whereas liberals today, like the Pod Save America types, like think that it's it's all just a matter of like tweaking the messaging. And if we just find the right, you know, kind of PR stunt, uh, we might get like this surge of people. And and, and it's just no, people are people can see right through that shit. Like people are much smarter then you give them credit for, you know, like they see right through it. Like they know they're being sold a bill of goods, you know? Um, so, so that's just, it, 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 like, right. Like that this, I, I wanted to talk about this whole, like, just go out and vote, just go out and vote because I find it kind of insulting, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're offering people nothing, yes. you know, when you're offering people mm-hmm. literally nothing, I mean, like, again, like the only thing you're offering them is like a slightly better technocratic management of decline, right? You know, the Republicans are frothing at the mouth, racists and incompetent and all that stuff. Democrats are are not so frothing at the mouth <laughs> and and they're slightly more competent yeah. in, the, in the type, but they're just not offering anything beyond that. So, of course, people are going to check out. I mean, it's just the only logical thing and shaming people into voting um, like the whole like you don't support, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just it, it, it's the most counterproductive thing. You have to give people yeah. something to vote for, not something to vote against. Yeah, I, God, I have so many thoughts. Let me just comment on the whole voter shaming thing because I honestly can't stand it in any context. I can't stand it in the context of uh, Bernie supporters who uh, decided that they don't want to vote for Biden. How, do, do you, boo? Like, oh, you don't want to vote for Biden. I'm not going to get at you. I'm not going to shame you. That's what you feel you need to do morally. That makes you feel better about your decisions. Then that's your right. Okay, but I don't like it when they then go after people who have decided, Okay, how can I minimize the harm after this election? Let me go ahead and vote for Biden. Those people have the right to vote for Biden if they want to vote for Biden, too. It goes both ways. Like the Mm -hmm. voter shaming needs to stop. If people have decided they don't want to vote. Right. It's not good enough to shame them. It's much better to try to figure out 
what it is that's preventing them from casting a ballot. And that's, you know, the incredible case that you just made right now. Um, I think that's an important case for people to listen to um, rather than just being insulting and, you know, putting out these naked celebrity videos. I feel bad that Sarah Silverman was in that um, because she was a Bernie supporter. She was supporter, a Bernie bro. And I think overall. So was yeah, Mark she, Ruffalo. Overall, she's a great person. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I think that they went into it with good intentions. And of I don't want to I mean, you know, go after. Yeah. You know, yeah, they don't. I mean, it's not like. I mean, some celebrities are, are like annoying and awful. Like the vast majority of them are just kind of like, you know, they want to help earnestly. They, they, they're being told like this is what they can do to help. You know, they can use their, their pretty face and, 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 and their fame to, to move some sort of needle. And like, I don't, I'm not trying to like blame them. I mean, I'm just, it's like, it's the, it's the, it's the ideological uh, underpinnings of that whole thing that I want to attack. And it's like, they're just kind of, following orders like it's not it's not anything that that important but uh but there is that there's yeah. just like that and, and you you see it like even from democratic elected leaders like they're just like go out and vote go out and vote like they don't say like go out and vote for me like go out and vote for me because i'm gonna do these this and that they just say like go out and vote like that just just in and of itself also meanwhile like just being completely feckless and uh and powerless to this like republican onslaught on the like on just basic kind of nitty-gritty even like those technocratic reforms that they want to do like just stopping the Republicans, blocking their ability to to destroy people's like ability to vote, like would would go a long way. But they can't even do that. Like they can't even do that. They yeah. just go out and say like, vote, pass it on. You know, it's it's un- I will unbearable. say the one thing, the one promising sign in regard to um, you know Trump's efforts to suppress the vote has shockingly been federal judges uh, who have passed down rulings um, in individual cases. Uh, regarding states that have uh, tried to do away with ballot drop-off locations. So uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott did that. Uh, He decided that he's only going to allow one ballot drop-off location per county, which is devastating if you're dealing with a densely populated county. Um, And it's no shocker that the densely populated counties happen to lean Democratic. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, tried to do the same thing. Uh, but a federal judge in Pennsylvania struck it down just this morning. I read that a federal judge in Texas also struck down the Texas, uh, you know, rule by Greg Abbott. So federal judges are playing an important role in kind of fighting back against uh, what the Trump campaign is trying to do. But the thing that's so frustrating is that we're relying on federal judges. We're not relying on the Democratic Party to fight back and ensure that people who do want to vote have the ability to do so and the ability to do so easily without all of these giant obstacles in the way. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, the Democratic Party is so embarrassing. And I feel like they've learned all the wrong lessons from the Trump era. You know, that Marcos guy from Daily Coast. He had tweeted something recently about how ecstatic he is about how the Democratic Party has now become the party of family values and religion and, you know, the uh, Lincoln Project uh, influence on the party has been so great because now we have the moral ground. What? No, we're dealing with the bushification of the Democratic Party right now. And it's disgusting and terrifying. And so this party just keeps moving further and further away from what many of the voters want. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it ends up because right now we have a pretty broad coalition behind Biden, but it's because we're dealing with, you know, a monster like Donald Trump. What happens in the future? 
You get what I'm saying? Like, I'm terrified about what will happen after Trump. And assuming that Biden wins, what happens after Biden when he has promised that nothing will fundamentally change? Yeah, I mean, this is probably a subject for a different decode segment. But the whole like Lincoln Project, you know, phenomenon of Republicans or former Republicans kind of joining the Democratic Party coalition um, is, you know, you you talk to normies who are like, I mean, why, why would you reject, you know, why would you reject their support? You know, like, you take what you can get. You take everyone, you know, like you, you just, but no, no, no. It's like you're letting the tiger into the cage or whatever the metaphor is. Like you, you, like the problem with their support is that then they are going to have influence in the party, right? We saw the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the graphs from Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page. You know, if they're allowed into the decision-making process and into the coalition, they will have power. So, that's it's 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 a problem it's not such so much a political problem but but a governing problem in that you will essentially are going to move further and further away from things that made the democratic party the party of the working class in the middle of the 20th century um and you're just going to continue the um as uh matt carp says the halliburton democratization of the democratic party and and then you're just kind of since we have a two party system, you're kind of boxing out everyone else because you're going to have like the the insane kind of extreme right wing kind of hyper nationalist hyper whatever white identity politics party on the extreme right, and then this kind of broad just kind of blobby party that that kind of just manages the empire <laughs> in a way, um, yeah. and and nothing that that is ever going to fundamentally change. So there's a deeper problem with the whole Lincoln Project. I mean, they're cringe, they're annoying. Um, their their ads are stupid, um, but the fact that people are like welcoming them, it's like, you know, you these are these are the bad guys. These are the bad guys. You do not want to be allied with these people. They're very 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 bad, um, and they're going to do 100%, bad things. Hundred percent, totally. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of people doing bad things, we have lots of uh, sound to get to featuring Donald Trump. And while he does bad things, he does unintentionally make us laugh. Um, so we're going to do a lighthearted segment next with um, our guest, Wozni Lombre. Uh, I think he's with us. There he yeah, is. Yeah, hey, there Woz. he is, baby. You're <laughs> muted, dude. So Woz, I'm sure. Woz is muted. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you there guys are is. familiar with Waz, um, but for those of you who maybe didn't catch his first interview uh, or appearance here on Weekends, he's a culture and NBA writer at The Athletic, also host of Woke Bros along with Nando Vila, and um, I'm super excited to have you. Hey, Waz. Hey, what's going on, guys? That that little monologue soliloquy Nando just did was, whoo, professionalism, brother. <laughs> That's right. You know, I'm very polished. Way more polished than our Woke Bros. Yes. Woke Bros is more of like a... You know, we're just, you know, shooting the shit, talking, you know, this is, I actually prepare for this. I write it. I, find <laughs> I elements, love it. <laughs> stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, get your Peter Jennings on, man. I, I love That's it. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Nando. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Anna. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, there's a lot going on. Was every time you laugh, like it like makes me feel better, regardless of whatever mood wow. I'm in. Like your <laughs> laugh is so infectious. It's incredible. So we figured, you know, there's been a lot of heavy stuff in the news, obviously. And why don't we lighten things up today and just laugh at Trump? Um, some of the crazy shenanigans coming from uh, his White House over the last week, insane things that he's been saying on camera. Um, and so... 
You know, the thing that I loved about the Michael Brooks show uh, was how Michael was never ashamed about how funny he found Trump, right? And there was yeah. like this one time when Trump said something that sounded like uh, a haiku. And I still yeah. laugh at that segment because he just, the way he communicates. Anyway, all right. So why don't we just get started? Let's go to one of the videos. Um, the topic of coronavirus. Obviously, Trump has been talking about coronavirus a lot lately because uh, he contracted the virus, can't keep the country safe from it, can't keep his own White House safe from it, can't even keep himself safe from the virus. And so uh, he goes to the hospital ends up leaving the hospital early and wants to prove to the American people that he has fully recovered. He's doing great, puts out this strange ranting video. But within that video, there are all these like little gems, including his thoughts on vulnerable seniors. So let's listen to that. We're taking care of our seniors. You're not vulnerable, but they like to say the vulnerable, but you're the least vulnerable. But for this one thing, you are vulnerable. And so am I. <laughs> oh man i i like that he's so used to just saying the opposite of whatever truth is but he realized he had to catch himself like wait hold on these yeah. homies might actually die from this so let me actually like <laughs> let yeah. me correct myself here right on the spot but he's so used to just saying whatever it is that might suit him in any case it doesn't matter how far or near the truth it may be. Um, but it's just funny to catch himself in real time. He says, I'm vulnerable. <laughs> relatable yeah. Trump. We love relatable Trump. It, well, it's it, again, it's, it's kind of like a poem, you know, it's like, but in this case, you're vulnerable. And so am I, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. I mean, yeah, I just I love, love that. It made me think this. Yeah. yeah. No, no, so go this ahead. Week, go this ahead. week, this week, like it just, um, it, the fact that like they had to put these proof of life videos like that, like people are like legitimately were like wondering whether Trump was actually dead and this was a body double or like, you know, the irreality of it all. And that to put the, out these proof of life videos kind of like, you know, holding up a newspaper like with today's date being like, I'm alive. Like it reminded me that just like right after that, the, the final debate between Joe Biden and Bernie where like Joe Biden did surprisingly well, everyone thought he was going to like, you know, collapse on his face and, 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 and just, blather nonsense like joe biden did surprisingly well but then he disappeared for like two weeks do you guys remember this and um yes. like 10 days into him people were like where the hell is joe biden like no one's seen a picture of him <laughs> you know on a campaign like in anything for like over a week and simone sanders his communications director you know like organized some sort of like dj instagram live stream for joe biden and then she was like hey look joe biden's checking into the live stream to like talk to the people and it was just a from the Joe Biden account, just a thumbs up emoji. And that was it. You know, like, it was like, it was like no, I want to see a newspaper proof of life. So, yeah. I mean, he's the, the problem is the strategy is always to just go with the opposite of whatever they're saying on CNN and MSNBC. So yeah. if they're saying the, the virus is deadly, is dangerous. It's, you know, it's attacking seniors, the worst, blah, 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 blah. You have to go against it. But in this fit, um, in this um, situation, he can't do that because he actually contracted it. So it's like, how do I, how do I go against the, the stuff they've been saying for months now when I actually have it? And that's where you see the confusion. And he's like, you're not vulnerable, but maybe in this case you are. Even I am. And it's just a resignation, yeah. man. And and he can see 
because all he cares about is numbers, polling, ratings, all of those things. He loves those sort of what are people doing, saying, watching, and he sees his numbers are just cratering. And all of this stuff just seems to be desperation. Um, I don't know if you guys um, caught this, but Dave Weigel for the Washington Post, uh, he put out something um, where a pack called the Raising Up for Trump. This pack just launched on Thursday. And they're trying to get pledges from businesses with over a million employees to promise to raise wages only if Trump gets reelected. If that oh is not God. the dumbest, oh <laughs> if that Christ. is not the dumbest, most desperate thing I've ever seen. The whole point of being a Republican and supporting this party is that you never have to raise wages. <laughs> you all you have to do is the, the most cynical things that, you know, maximize profits. Raising wages is the opposite of why you become a Republican in the first place. So why would these guys agree to this? It's like this idea that like things are going to get much worse for us if Biden comes around. But much worse in the context of American business is raising wages. <laughs> that's, that's worse yeah. to them. You know, like it's just the desperation is you starting to see it all over the place, man, from the money class, the donor class to, you know, his campaign. It's just desperate. And I think that clip is just showing you that he's just desperate at this point. Yeah. Look, the, the Republican case to be made is that raising wages is actually awful for the wage earner, right? Like that's right. the big kind of message. Like, actually, actually turns out if you get paid more for the backbreaking labor you're engaged in, your life is going to be awful. And you don't want that, do you? You want to make sure that you get trickled on by, by your boss if you're lucky. Um, no, but like there's a huge <laughs> contradiction with Trump that like it boggles my mind because I'm shocked that more people haven't caught on to it. So he put out that ad or that video to uh, signify strength, right? Like I'm healthy, I'm strong, I'm an alpha, you know, like that's this whole shtick. But the contradiction is he's got an awful spray tan on his face. He speaks in like this weird whispery voice and his hands are pasty as hell. Like he's got the <laughs> whitest pasty hands like up against like next to his face as he's talking and you could just see like the the difference and you're like, how is it that this man who either has a spray tan or horrible bronzer and it constantly whines and cries like that's 95% of what he does. He's on Twitter all day long and most of his tweets are complaining about something about how unfair life is, how tough things are for him and how the media is so unfair. Like he is the biggest bitch I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> I haven't seen anyone cry more than Donald Trump cries. Yet he has somehow sold this like this persona of an alpha male. And it just well, it doesn't exist. You know what the persona is based on? It's based on saying fucked up things about minorities. Like to 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 certain people that makes you tough. You're saying the quiet part loud. You're talking how we normally talk in closed doors in public. And so to them, that's a show of some kind of strength. But the dude is obviously hyper insecure, sensitive, and feeble. And when you see him doing his, oh, I gotta go on the, 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 um, you know, the expedition, excuse me, the excursion so that, you know, I can wave at my fans, my adoring fans. He just needs that 
reassurance. Like they love me. They really want me. That like he's not some strong, actual, self-assured person. He was willing to say messed up things about minorities and a certain white people in that country, in this country, that means you're a hardcore uh just person, individualist. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I think we should look at the next clip because I think it really underscores just how much of like a, you know, like a fancy, like, you know, like kind of New York guy Trump is like, he's just so not like, I don't know, just watch the clip and you'll see what I'm talking about. Are you tested? I, I heard you. I heard you said you were going to test again today. Have you been retested? Uh, I have been retested and I, I haven't even found out numbers or anything yet, but I've been retested. And I know I'm at either the bottom of the scale or free. He's definitely at the bottom of the scale. There's no question. Yeah. Like I think everyone knows that. We can see that. He's been at the bottom of the scale. His daddy told him he's at the bottom of the scale, like every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, it's funny that Trump didn't realize that it's a COVID test is pass fail. I got a COVID test. I, I, I passed it. You know, like it's pass fail. You don't get a, you don't get a score <laughs> nor a number, you know, like it's just like, you know, I, I'm told, I'm told I did very well. I did very well. The highest numbers, you know, like, and it's just, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's great. I mean, he's the bullshit just, artist, scam artist stuff is, is just instinctual for him. He's just like, that's his normal. Like, how do I bullshit this person? That's just how he doesn't come at anything earnestly. And, you know, honestly, as a New Yorker, I kind of, I kind of hate earnest people. <laughs> so yeah. part of that, I, I enjoy that about Trump is that he's never earnest about anything. It's kind of hilarious. It's He's cartoonishly, you know, scammy or a scammer. But like, that's, you know, that's 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 more of his stuff. It's like, we're going to get the biggest. We're going to get the brightest. We're going to get all the best people. It's, it's all bluster. The, yeah, the vice presidential going back debate. to what you were saying, yeah. sorry, real quick, going back to what you were saying earlier was, I mean, the whole reason why he's sick and pretending like he's not sick is because he wants to continue holding in-person events. And why? Like, why does he want to keep holding in-person events? Sure, some might argue it's because uh, he wants to keep campaigning because he sees that his numbers aren't so great. But I think the bigger issue is that he wants his ego stroked. Like he wants to do these events where um, his supporters, I, it's shocking that he s- still has them, but they exist. We'll tell him how amazing he is. We'll talk about how they'll die for him. There was a video of one of his supporters sitting outside of Walter Reed while Trump was in the hospital. He's like, Trump, I'll die for you. I die for Trump. I'd- these people need mental health care. Like, no, but I'm being serious. There's something wrong with you if you would die for a president. Like, who said that? But Trump loves it. That's why he'll, he'll risk the lives of anyone if he can get, like, an injection of ego booster. You know, like, that's what he wants. And I think you saw Apparently that. Apparently, he, he did a fundraiser with, like, top dollar donors while he knew he had COVID. Like, and there was a buffet. And he was just, like, putting his grubby hands on, like, <laughs> on, 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 like, a disgusting, you know, roast beef. <laughs> but look, th- th- you saw the same thing when people were like, how can he refuse to disavow the Proud Boys or QAnon? It's like, why would he disavow the people who love him? That's his number one rule. He's like, I don't know anything about QAnon, but I know they love me. So why would I disavow them? That's just 
that's his MO. Like he needs the love. He needs the ego stroking, you know, not to get inside the guy's head or play armchair psychologist or psychiatrist. I can never get, which one is the one that peddles the drugs? I can never get those two psychiatrists. There you go. Um, and, and I think that's what you see. It's like, he needs the love, the adoration to feel like himself when he's not in front of a crowd, when he's not getting the endorphin hits of people laughing at his sometimes awful jokes. Um, he, he just doesn't feel like himself. And again, it's not like he could sit in the white house and look at numbers that say, I have this great approval rating or Q rating, or, you know, I'm winning Florida or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Like there's nothing, there's, there's no good news around his campaign. And so he has to go out and put himself and others at risk so that he's just not in a total and utter funk and depression. Yeah. Well, look, the one thing that we got to give him credit for, though, is that he's a man of fashion. He understands how important it is to look good both on the runway and on the battlefield. And he addresses that in the next video. I took over a depleted military, old equipment, broken equipment. Even in the army, all brand new uniforms with the belt. Everybody wanted the belt. <laughs> you know, I mean, folks, people are saying gorgeous Louis Vuitton belts with the big LV with the big LV belt buckle for our beautiful troops. Our beautiful troops are gonna look good, you know, because you gotta look good to play good, right? Uh, yeah, Sugar Daddy uh, Trump might be my new favorite Trump, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> I took care of no. everything. I got him new belts. I got him new ships. I got him new everything. I take care of it. Daddy has it covered. Now give watching, me some sugar, watching. Baby. <laughs> Watching Pence in the vice presidential debate, it brought me back to like a previous era of politics in which like, you know, because Pence, Pence knows all the tricks, like he knows all the things that Republicans used to traditionally do and like how to frame it and, you know, how, how to be like, thank you so much, Susan, for the great question. Here's me not answering the question. You know, like it's just he, he felt like such a throwback and Trump kind of destroyed, single handedly destroyed an entire type of political talk that like every politician kind of sounds the same. Like every politician, if you just kind of close your eyes and let it wash over you, they all kind of say the same words and they have the same kind of cadence and rhetorical trick. Trump is like such a sledgehammer to that whole thing. And he proved that like people like don't give a shit about like that smarmy sort of like, you know what, at the end of the day, what I just, I just love my country and I want to, do what's best. And thank you, Susan. You know, like, I think we can all agree on this stage. Like we may have our differences, but you know, we, we all like just love America and want the best for everyone or something, you know, like all those kind of things that I'm talking about, like, you know, the politicians like always kind of did Trump, like took a sledgehammer to that whole thing and just brought that whole edifice down. And if there is like a silver lining to the Trump nightmare, it's that maybe that that from the ashes of that destruction of that whole edifice, that whole kind of smarmy, just fakeness of American politics, that someone could come in and and with a different with a different type of politics. I mean, that is the kind of very hopeful silver lining to the whole thing. Yeah, what's amazing is is how difficult it is for politicians, establishment politicians specifically, to like readjust and you know, find a way to communicate in a way that appeals to people. Like anytime you hear, uh, especially Democratic leadership, try to uh, go after Donald Trump, 
their videos are awful. Like they're hard to watch and they're embarrassing, right? Like they don't know how to fight back. They go, they immediately go back to the way they've been communicating, which just is not an effective way. It's not an effective way to offer up a retort to like whatever crazy, you know, statement Donald Trump put out there. By the way, how about don't always be in the position of having to defend yourself? That's the other issue. Like, Trump goes out and he throws punches left and right. He doesn't care, right? Everyone's always playing defense around him. I I, I just want someone on the left who knows how to communicate and who can play offense because there's so much like material to use against the Republican Party. I just haven't seen anyone use that material effectively yet. Yeah, and you know, the funny thing, the last two Democrats, to my mind, who were sort of good at what you're talking about is delivering something that could seem, that could come off as authentic, is ironically, is Barry. He was really good at playing the dozens and snappy quips. Like, I remember when Jordan dissed his golf game, he said, well, Mike should worry about his team, the Charlotte Hornets, who like basically missed the playoffs every single season. It was just like a, a quick jab, like, you suck at running a basketball team, right? Like... Um, and Bernie, Bernie was good at yeah, just Bernie's getting good. down to the facts and and having good quips like Hillary Clinton when she's like, well, Donald, you didn't pay your taxes, did you? Right. Like, yeah. it's just, you're not even not... a real billionaire, you loser. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, just, it, just, it just doesn't land the way you need it to. And, and, and Joe is, you know, with his come on, man. <laughs> That's yeah. just, I know doesn't hit the way it needs to but yeah i think barry and bernie were actually really good at talking like human beings and be like what he said what what about x y and z you know um and 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 i don't think and and i don't think that's kamala's thing either kamala is very like academic she's like your stern principal almost um and, and you know ironically obviously she was a cop but like she's just like a stern like scold like excuse me mind your manners sir you know, and, and I, don't think that's, I don't think that's an effective way you're, to communicate. You're right that Barry had swag. I mean, I encourage people to go on YouTube and look at the Democratic debates from 2008 between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. I mean, he was vicious. Torture. Yeah, he was like, mean. Vicious. Like, they, they called well, him sexist for it afterwards, and I was yeah, proud of well, him yeah. for it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, woke discourse, like, was just kind of starting then. It hadn't, it hadn't really kind of taken hold. But like, had had someone spoken to Hillary Clinton like that in 2016, you know, because yeah. Bernie was comparatively very gentle um, yeah. compared to Obama, like it, it would have been like an absolute meltdown. But like, it was starting to happen, uh, but it wasn't. It hadn't kind of become as hegemonic as it is now. Um, and and yeah, he was like absolutely merciless. Like he, <laughs> just, like, he was just vicious, you know. And and that that works, you know. Voters it worked respect- for Trump in in yeah. his primary with with all of those little nicknames like and we talk about it all the time but it was yeah. effective low energy Jeb Bush basically saying you can't get it up anymore Jeb you yeah. know Lion Ted little, little Marco, Marco Rubio little Marco is spectacular and and he that would just keep really talking good, about yeah. are you still thirsty do you need some water because of the yeah. you know the water thing like he was very good at that but i don't think that's going to be joe joe biden's thing and in fact and you know to bring it back around to barry and that white house correspondence dinner where everybody thinks like that was basically the start of trump like i yeah. want to 
kill this yeah. guy. Barry yeah. was just, ooh, he was mean and vicious to the Donald at that dinner. And, and you know, yeah. I, I don't think there's anybody on the Democratic side. It's just like, it's the worst of both worlds. It's stupid, you know, sort of focus group to death cautious-ass corporate speak with none of the policies that either of us want and none of the fun stuff. It's just like, what are you actually giving me, guys? <laughs> yeah, they're they're all... It's like they're all PR agents. Like, you know how PR agents are, like, notoriously careful and afraid of everything? Yeah. And they always tell you to do the wrong thing, not the right thing. The yeah. right thing is to go, go out swinging, right? And they just constantly tell you to do the exact opposite of that. Um so we have one more video that I want to get to, though. Uh, and this one, you know, no one really talked about this part of Trump's interview with Maria Bartiromo, but it really stood out to me. So as we all know, Donald Trump has had one presidential debate with Joe Biden. Uh, he decided to throw a hissy fit because uh, he's sick. He has coronavirus. And uh, the <laughs> organizers of the second presidential debate decided to do it virtually Trump got upset about that. He canceled his appearance. And so the second presidential debate is officially canceled. Uh, both candidates are going to do their own town halls that night, completely separate. I give you that context because what you're about to hear is a statement that Trump made about the second presidential debate that hasn't happened yet during his interview with Maria Bartiromo. I beat him easily in the first debate according to the polls that I've seen, but I beat him easily. I felt I beat him easily. I think he felt it, too. He wouldn't answer any questions, and he had the uh, protection of Chris Wallace all night long. It was, I, thought he, I thought Chris Wallace was a disaster. But I beat him in the first debate. At the second debate, we have a never-Trumper as a host, but that's okay because I beat him in the second debate also. And uh, But I'm not going to so do a virtual debate. <laughs> what? I think he said, I, he said, this, <laughs> this guy is incredible. I think he said the second debate is would have had a, a never Trumper. And, but he said, that's okay. I'd beat him in the second debate also, but I'm not doing it virtually. So I don't uh, have to. He said, oh, he would. I would beat him. Yeah, I'd, the, um, Whatever the shortening of the I would, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. He said I'd yeah, beat him, yeah. but it's just, it's, it's just so. Hilarious. It's just that it's so crazy that like I don't put it past him to right, claim to, he won a debate that hasn't even happened. Yet. Right, like, it doesn't matter. I win. I always win. I'm the best. I'm the greatest every single time. I never mess up. Nothing bad ever happens to me. Everybody else is at fault. He's on Fox Business calling Chris Wallace a disaster. <laughs> It's just great. It's great. Man. One of the one of the things that's like slightly um, encouraging in a weird way is that Trump is such a strange human being. Like no one's yeah. like Trump. Like no. the, like Trump does. No. There's, there's not like you know. There's other people that like are out there, and you're like, yeah, th th I know that kind of guy. Like he's Trump is just not a Trump was like like a glitch in the matrix or something. He's like a mistake, and and, and there's no one like him. There's like no other mold to like that someone else could like and and other people that try to like be like him or imitate him like can't do it because he's just in a way he's like authentically himself and it's so weird and so the fact that like he has become the republican party and and like his fans like love him they love him so much they love their boys so much like when he's gone um someone else is going to try to take up his mantle you know and it's not going to be it's not going to feel the same way you know it's like 
trying to take like a like a generic version of like some hard stuff drug you know like it won't it won't hit the same way you know like so so that's kind of the 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 encouraging thing is like who's gonna who's gonna come after him the person who comes after him is not gonna have that kind of that weird the very weird swagger that trump has people are not gonna connect to tom cotton that's just no. not going to no. happen. Look at his stupid face. No. He's no. he's a freaking robot. Okay. Like nobody's gonna connect to that. But you know, like you said, he is authentically himself in that he's not gonna break character. Like I am so cocksure of every single thing that I say that you know, just imagine me coming on here and saying, by the way, Anna. Chank was a disaster. <laughs> like what? Like nobody does that. You don't just go on somebody's show and completely rip their colleague. Like that's not something yeah. that normal people do, you know, but he doesn't care. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's like the host is just like, yeah, yeah. Chris Wallace sucked. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're they're Trump loyalists. So, of course, they mm-hmm. would throw their own colleagues under the bus to, like, lick Trump's boots. Like, that's what they do. They yeah. love it. And remember, Trump chooses people who worked at the White House to serve in his campaign or in his administration. Like, that's that's where he gets his, uh, you know, camp like his his talent, I guess. I don't know, if, for lack of a better word. But, yeah, they all I'll- kiss his ass. Go ahead. I'll, I'll amend one thing I said that there is one person, there is one person who could take up the mantle of Trump. Um, and that's uh, our friend, Michael Brooks is who he always said was the greatest, most talented broadcaster in America, Alex Jones. Like Alex Jones is the only <laughs> guy who could fill the void post-Trump in a post-Trump world. Could. Um, uh, you know, he could, he could do that. Uh, so like, I look forward to uh, Alex Jones presidential campaign in, in 2028. Or and whatever. people need to oh understand the reason why he engenders not um, Trump and not Alex Jones. The reason why he engenders so much love from his fan base is because he beat the libs. Like they tasted defeat yeah. in 2008 and 2012 yeah. and defeat was certain in 2016. Like they all thought they were going to lose again. And Trump delivered a defeat. It's like it's like how I feel about um, David Tyree for the helmet catch against the Patriots in eighteen and one. I hate the freaking Patriots. They were about to have the greatest NFL season of all time, and the Giants lucked it out. And I will always love those people who delivered that victory for me. That's what Trump is <laughs> for um, for his fans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Waz, can you stick around for our salt segment? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Well, look, I have a a Charlie Kirk related salt segment to talk about. But before I get to that, I will say, dude, I have been on three different shows talking about the uh, situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. I went on Woke Bros uh, this week to talk about at length. Yes. And like the pressure, this drives me crazy, like the pressure that I'm getting to post some empty thing picture of the Armenian flag, whatever on social media is making me want to slip my wrist. Like I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I don't. You do, can't win with these people. Know. Anna. No, I don't, but I, that's the thing. Oh, I'm never going to win with them and I don't care to win with them. I care about doing the right thing. And the right thing is to inform people about what's happening in that region of the world right now. That's my job. That's what I care about. That's what has the, that's where I have the most impact posting a random picture on social media 
in order to appease people in our, in LA, <laughs> in LA, like, that's I, pure. Okay. That's pure nationalism that's so destructive. You know, like you know, <laughs> outside of like what's going on in the, in the conflict, like this whole like the, the flag thumping is never, never, never. No, no good comes from that. Like just unbridled. Nothing comes from like that. it. That's the thing, yeah. Nando. Like, and by the way, I'm I'm specifically citing you know this conflict because that's what I'm getting the most like shame for because I'm not doing like the the theater. They want me to engage in the theater. It has mm-hmm. no impact. That's my problem with it. I don't care what the issue is. I don't care what the political movement is. I don't use my Instagram page to post political nonsense. I post pictures of my dog <laughs> and my family and myself because that's what Instagram is. No one, yes. no one is going to like feel, uh, you know, motivated to learn about what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh because I'm posting a picture of the Armenian flag on my Instagram page. So one, um, a couple of people hit me on social about Anna's appearance on the Woke Bros, which you guys can check out. She was phenomenal. Um, and, and I just want to say this was in the minority of responses to Anna's appearance, like the vast minority. Um, but people said Anna was very biased and only told one side of the story, which was the Armenian side. So basically they accused you of being too staunchly and blindly um, Armenian-leaning. Arme- yeah. Right. Um, secondly, I just want to say as somebody who is... Um, <laughs> who's gotten some exposure to Armenian nationalism. Woo, Anna, I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I can't even imagine what they're doing in your mentions and that type of stuff. And, you know, I would have just encouraged you to keep the main thing the main thing and, and, and you know, be a serious person. Yeah. I, like, I, it's, it's stupid to engage that. in that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's and that's... 100%. And that's the thing. I think the point of doing what it is that you do and, and what and what we do, try to do on the Woke Bros, is sort of exposing people to stuff that they might not have already been exposed to or ordinarily just naturally gravitated towards learning about. Um, and the, the fact of the matter is, if you're an um, Armenian, you know, part of the Armenian diaspora in Los Angeles, you're already invested in this. You're already in tune with the conflict. You're already, you're already there. We're trying to get 100%. other people who aren't there, there. So it's, it's like this, this shit ain't for you. <laughs> yeah. you know? But like, you just, you just, you just mentioned something so important um, that I want to, I, I want to emphasize and elaborate on a little more. Because everything, all of the activism among Armenians in L.A. specifically is very insular, right? Mm. It's all like a giant echo chamber of like, I I am a good, proper, moral Armenian because <laughs> I am amongst my fellow Armenians who all agree with me that the Armenian genocide needs to be recognized. First of all, it absolutely does need to be recognized. But how do you win? Right. Like, let's talk strategy a little bit. Do you win by surrounding yourself with people who already agree with you? And then you do your yearly march, uh, you know, demanding recognition of the Armenian genocide. Or do you communicate with and build bonds with individuals who don't know much about the genocide? But more importantly, people who have been fed propaganda their entire lives meant to misinform, disinform people about the Armenian genocide. Look, uh, people get angry because I work for a Turk, okay? But I would argue that I have been much more influential in pushing the Turkish CEO of the largest online news show 
to publicly acknowledge the Armenian genocide. That is powerful. And if nationalistic Los Angeles Armenians don't think so, that's on them. They have Mm. their strategy, which clearly hasn't gotten them far. I have my strategy. Mm. You would need to win hearts and minds. And that's what I want to do. I'm not going to X out every Turkish person that in existence because they happen to be Turkish. What I want to do is persuade them with knowledge, with information, with evidence, with proof, but more importantly, with understanding. And so, again, I have my strategy. They have theirs. I'm sure I'm going to get a ton of rape and death threats after this video comes out. That's fine. I've dealt with it my entire life. But my point is, um, I... I just think that strategy is something that uh, gets lost in the mix because everyone is so concerned with the theater and the symbolism and with the messaging that they're such great moral Armenians. No, <laughs> like let's let's look past that for a second and think about what we can do to get more people on our side. That's what I want to do. Yeah. Man, Anna, I love you so much, dude. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> uh, so beautifully you know? said and perfectly said. But, you know, and again, um, you know, full disclosure, I've actually had some of these very conversations with, you know, people who are in and around my life um, who happen to be Armenian. And, you know, I, I understand the the passions um, and the, the feelings involved 100%. I can understand that. But at a certain point, the, 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 a, a, a sort of irrationality creeps in about achieving certain ends. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, guys, man, like, I, like there's, there's certain, like, uh, I guess, like, they want to put a sheen on certain things. Like, uh, it, it has to look right rather than being effective, mm-hmm. like Anna just said. Which, you know, again, I'm not dissing people who want things to look a certain way. That's fine. Like, we all have that sort of strain in us when it comes to certain things. But I, I think what Anna's talking about, it's like, if we want to carry this thing outside of the community, which, again, it has... approval rating here. We can move past it in the community. If we want to take it somewhere different, there needs to be a different approach and and sort of a a healthy respect for people having different perspectives and understandings of things. And, you know, the the best way to change hearts and minds is to effectively communicate. And I I think going um, pure, you know, moralistic and nationalistic, I, I don't know that people gravitate towards that sort of messaging. And that's all I'll say for that. Yeah, total. Like if you if you come at people um, with this antagonistic tone, they're not going to listen to what you're like. They're not going to listen to the case that you're trying to make. Right. And so I get it because imagine knowing one point five million Armenians slaughtered in the in the Armenian genocide. And so many countries refuse to acknowledge it. That is infuriating, absolutely infuriating. And I understand the passion and the anger and the rage. I I mean, I feel it right now just talking about it. But again, if you approach the conversation with um, Otarned, right? Otar means uh, uh, people who aren't Armenian. Uh, With an antagonistic tone, they're they're just not going to be receptive to the case that you're trying to make. And you have to understand that 
when it comes to propaganda, the Turkish side has been incredibly effective. They just have. In in Turkey, if you acknowledge the Armenian genocide as a Turk, you will be persecuted. You will face <laughs> actual punishment by the government there. That's how serious the propaganda is. And so when you're dealing with uh, a, a Turkish American and they might come at you with the disinformation, they were fed literally their entire lives about that, uh, about the genocide. Again, like the and I, I've had these conversations where I didn't have the patience, I didn't have the understanding, and I like immediately wanted to go to war, right? But I didn't win in any of those cases because I didn't persuade anyone, I didn't change anyone's mind. And really, if you want change um, at the very core of the situation, which is the Turkish government, you got to get the Turkish people on your side. And believe it or not, there are plenty of Turkish people who do acknowledge the genocide. No, 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 Anna. The Turks are all pure evil. They're all pure evil. Come on. We know this. We know this. Well, I mean, if you want change on a governmental <laughs> level, which is what you need um, in Turkey, uh, you again, you need to get the people on your side. And believe it or not, those people do exist. Um, and there are people who can be persuaded and convinced. You think you think the people of Turkey love Erdogan? I mean, think about all those mass protests that happened and how many journalists were jailed as a result. Like it's it's insane. We need to get those people on our side and. I don't know. I just think that's a more effective strategy, but I could be wrong. We'll see. And, you know, for me, this awakening um, that, that you're talking about, I had a similar awakening after 2016 because I just remember the entire Trump campaign in 2016, starting in 2015 to 2016, just like wanting, just banging my head against the wall. Like people can't be falling for this. And like posting angry stuff on Facebook and getting into fights and people's comments on Facebook and all this. Other. And I just I went insane. I went crazy yeah. watching this happen in real time. And I just had to take a, like after the, 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 the monumental L and after just the depression, the mini depression, I should say, that set in afterwards. I decided I'm not going to approach things that way anymore. I'm going yeah. to talk to people. Right. Like people can disagree and I want to hear what their arguments are and I want to best present minds in such a way that they understand. And, you know, I happen to be around a decent amount of, say, Republicans. Right. And I and I and I'll say to them, like, I don't need to talk to you about Trump. I'm just like, look, if we can give one point five trillion dollars to the biggest corporations, um, we can give to normal people, right? Like for, for, for the simple reason of what do we say to people that don't have any money generally in America? You're a piece of shit. You're a loser. You're a nothing. We don't say that to corporations when they run out of money and they mess up. So let's just treat people the way we treat these corporations. That's the, and it's like, well, yeah, I guess that is right. And that's it. You don't have to be like, what the fuck? Donald Trump is yeah. racist. And it's like, just have a conversation about what you actually want to change people, open people's eyes to. Um, I, I just, I just, I personally, I know for a fact, I went completely insane throughout the entire year of 2016 behind that oh, damn yeah. campaign. And um, it's just, I think it's just, a, it's just a different way to be now. Yeah. And also for your own mental, like, yeah, sanity. I can't do it. I can't uh, do it. Yeah. I, I, I used to want to engage with like family members and stuff um, who were just wrong on the issues <laughs> and it would blow up and turn into a huge fight. And now I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to know if you're specifically a family member of mine, because I don't want it driving a wedge between 
people in my family. Like I, I it's not worth it. You know, I want to ask you um, about that, Anna, because this came up in a conversation that I was having with somebody after our episode. Um, why do you think it is that um, the Armenian community of L.A. is so right wing leaning? You know, I'm not really sure. Um, there, Look, as with any um, group of people, uh, Armenians have political parties. One is further to the right. Um, Dashnak is the name of that political party. Uh, based on what I've heard, uh, the majority of Armenian diaspora co-signed to that uh, ideology. So that could be part of it. But I think there's also, I mean, think about it. These are people um, who come from, a line of people who were forced out of their own country. And there's a lot of anger about that. And Ooh. as a result, I think that, you know, nationalism grows when you've been forced out of your motherland. Um, so that would be my theory. And yeah, like, I, I just think part of the problem with the Armenian diaspora in Los Angeles, and I think it's starting to change a little bit, but certainly when I was a kid, when I was in grade school, um, it was horrible. It was awful because mm. you're not allowed to think outside the box at all, not even a little bit. Um, and I've always been the type that thinks outside the box. I'm not right wing. Many Armenians in L.A. are. Many of them support Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump is like kneecapped them over and over again on the issues that matter the most to them, like the Armenian genocide, like the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. Donald Trump's homies with Erdogan. That's why he's created this vacuum to allow Erdogan to work with the Azeris to, you know, persecute uh, and force out the ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. But it, and one other thing is like the lack of knowledge about what's happening in politics today and even like the history of the genocide, how it went down, you know, the uh People are offended by the name of the show I work on, The Young Turks, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with Turks and has nothing to do with the Young Turks um, that eventually overthrew the Ottoman Empire, uh, you know, during the Armenian Genocide. But if that name offends you because you think the Young Turks orchestrated the Armenian Genocide, read about the history of the Young Turks. First of all, let me emphasize again. We are not in any way associated with Turkish people or those young Turks, nothing like that. Rod Stewart had a popular song titled Young Turks because it means rebel. We, you, we're in America. We do a show out of America. So we have a name with a definition based in the our, uh, our American context. But within the Young Turks, there was a faction that was far more right-wing, absolutely hated uh, Armenians, the Committee of Union and Progress. That offshoot of the Young Turks pushed for and committed the Armenian genocide. But whatever, I'm talking about history. They don't care about history. What matters <laughs> is it's the name of a show that offends them. And so as a result, I'm going to get rape and death threats on a regular basis for the rest of my life. Doesn't matter if they change the name of the show. Doesn't matter if I quit the Young Turks and work somewhere else for decades. This will always be the issue. This will be something that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life because I thought outside the box as uh, an Armenian-American who was born and raised in America, hosting an American politics show. Man, I can't relate because uh. I'm just such a great Haitian. Every Haitian American in America would agree. It's, it's crazy. I can't yeah. relate to you being such a horrible Armenian, Anna. Well, I got to be myself. Uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> I guess. If, I'm, if I'm horrible, that's fine. But one thing that I knew You're without... You're never not going to be yourself. You're incapable that. of it. 
<laughs> yeah, you're incapable yeah. of not being yourself. Come on, I'm, I'm trying to imagine. I'm trying to yeah. imagine middle school Anna Kasparian <laughs> being <laughs> like this crazy hippie liberal amongst a bunch of Armenians, yeah. and it's just killing me right now. <laughs> <laughs> the good oh, thing is, uh, um, I don't know. What do you think, Anna? Do you think the, I don't know if we have time for Charlie Kirk Dunk or should we do the kale, the kale segment? Because uh, the people love the kale, the kale I like segment. The, yeah, I do yeah. too. Let's do kale. It's it's okay if we skip Charlie Kirk. Sorry for that random yeah. impromptu rant. All no, good. Um, All good. <laughs> no worries. All good, baby. Kale, so, what up, man? How's it going? I'm nice good. I'm feeling, man. You, Kale, did you make your did you make your bed like during the show? I make it multiple times during the show. It's just yeah, but you like and forth. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> That's my girlfriend tomorrow. She's just like standing in the yeah. frame, and I'm just like, uh, yeah. we're, we're yeah. live. Hey. One more guest on. One more and guest. Just, yeah. And just for the people at home, just a, to know uh, the reason why she is stalking this show right now. My girlfriend is actually also Armenian, and so this conversation that Anna was having is a very interesting and pertinent one because she, mm. she actually, um, from what I could observe is in the middle of Anna and the right wing Armenians, right? Like she's not quite as hippie and liberal. I, I like to call her normie. She's a normie. She's a nice, you know, affluent Democrat, suburban Democrat. She's a nice person, <laughs> But she's not a crazy radical like us on this show. And so she tends to, you know, she tends to empathize with Anna's own plight because she's a kind of a sort of rebel Armenian, you know, just dating a black man is a revolutionary act in that community, man. No, no I was going to say, look, keeping it real, keeping it real, it is, it is. Um, that's, I'll just leave it there. Uh, so um, I don't. I have a lot of respect for her because uh, I know from my own personal experience, um, dating outside of that Armenian pool uh, was a difficult thing to for the community to come to terms with. Uh, <laughs> but I love who I love. And um, yeah, I'll leave. Wow. It. That was inspiring. Love is love. Love is love. Love Dude, we're love. in America. Like, can I just say, <laughs> we're in America. Like, I get it. I, I, and by the way, my family, my parents, uh, you know, they were part of a diaspora. They actually went back to Armenia and lived in Armenia um, as kids. Uh, well, actually, now that I think about it, my mom was born in Armenia. My dad was born in Damascus. But they were both raised in Armenia as kids. Um and of course, this is way after the genocide happened. So they could have stayed in Armenia. I tell my parents this all the time. But they came to America, <laughs> to L.A., like one of the most diverse places yep. in the United States. And you're going to tell me like, oh, no, you need you need to stick to an Armenian part. No, I, but I but there's this hot ass Cuban. Right. Like, like he's pretty hot. Sashaying that hot, hot booty like right in front of me. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to say no to him. No, I'm not going to say Miami no to him. Male, I love him. Anna, you are making Miami me blush male right have, like as nice of asses as like as like, you know, like any ass you could ever have. Like the Miami male Cuban ass is like a thing, you know, it's true. It definitely it's like true. it's why there's just good baseball players. Oof, yes, it's true. It's true. Um, but they're also great people. Like, I mean, obviously, I fell in love with my husband for uh, reasons outside of his physical attributes. But what? my point is, you know, 
and I get the I get the desire to like stick to your own people, especially since um, we're persecuted people. You get what I'm saying? So you want to uh, multiply, you want to um, increase your numbers. I understand that, but I'm not gonna live every moment of my life based on what happened to Armenians a century ago. I got to live my life and do what makes me happy. And my husband makes me happy. He just happens to not be Armenian and that's okay. Mm. So actually on this, we just got a super chat question that's relevant to our discussion. And people, if Mm. you have super, if you have questions that you would like to ask us and we will answer in the next 12 to 15 minutes or so, uh, put them in the, the YouTube live chat um, as a super chat. Uh, but this first one from Erica is asking, do we recommend dating a normie or someone obsessed with the left like us? I think mm. it's important to just say that when we say normie, we're just referring to people who are not like obsessively politically minded. They're yeah, not like, yeah. constantly following the news or like, right. you know, knocking on doors for Bernie Sanders, even months after the election, People in my neighborhood are asking me to stop. Uh, but <laughs> that was a horrible joke. Um, it was a good I joke. Know. I laughed. I actually laughed. Yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> well, that might say more about you than my joke. <laughs> maybe it's, well, maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, that it's relevant to the question because like I'm one of those people, right? Like that would find that kind of joke funny. Whereas like my girlfriend would have been like, why would you do that? Right. (laughs) Right. So, so thoughts on on dating normies versus uh, lefties, I guess, or righties. I'm 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 dating a normie. I don't know about you guys. Same. Same. I've never. I I think I don't. I couldn't date somebody who was a staunch Republican. It just wouldn't work. But I think dating somebody who is sort of centrist, moderate, whatever you want to call is completely fine. Like, like, for instance, like I think Showtime put on a a show with uh, about Comey. Like, I can't watch that. I'm too impassioned and enraged. I can't I can't watch that dispassionately. So it's good to be around somebody who can see things that are you know, sort of overtly political and watch them dispassionately and move about their day. Certain things just, I get too riled up and passionate about. I think it's better um, that my significant other can be calm about things that relate to politics, honestly. Like, this, so last night was very cute. Like, right before we went to sleep, uh, my girlfriend just asked me, She like, very earnestly, she goes, Nando, what's the deep state? <laughs> I think I swear to God last night. I swear to God last night, that was the question. Oh, I, got, I was like, uh, okay, well, uh, you know, like where to begin, you know, like, but uh, uh, yeah, it was just like, it was like a very touching moment to be like, you know, there's, uh, I mean, I, I, I would maybe struggle to date like a hardcore, you know, committed like resistance type. You know, that was like just obsessively, obsessively like going through Carter Page's emails or something, you know, like something that I, I can't even like uh, get up to, to even care about. Um, I would maybe struggle with, but like I'm dating someone who's not incredibly politically, just political, just kind of, you know, aware of more or less what's going on, but doesn't obsess over the news or anything like that um, the way I do. Nando, I think you missed some pretty obvious pillow talk. I think because yeah, I mean, you're not a normie. No, I know. I, I mean, it. I thought about like, oh, yeah, I can go extra deep if you want, you know, like, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So there's but, these uh, guys called the Dulles Brothers, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, deep state talk. That's hilarious. That's just yeah. hilarious. So sexy. That's great. 
Yeah. What's the deep state? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. so so like my partner was apolitical when I met him, which I liked. Um but he his family's not apolitical. They're they're Cubans in, you know, South Florida and of course uh lean to the right. And so um that's been a little bit of a tricky situation, right? <laughs> because now that he's with me and he hears my segments and knows what my arguments are, um, he's certainly way further to the left than anyone in his family. And so like that, uh, Michael Brooks was supposed to have like a conversation with him about what happened during the Cuban revolution. And I'm so mm. sad that that never happened. Um, so Michael had agreed to do it, you know, uh, a week or two before he passed away. And so mm. after he passed away, I was like looking for videos of Michael talking about the Cuban revolution. There were a few with Bashkar. Um, and so I made him watch those because, you know, a lot of the uh, commentary he hears about the Cuban revolution is from the perspective of Cuban refugees. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I like I like normies and apolitical types in my personal life uh, because I I work all day every day, and so it's kind of nice to get mm. a little bit of a break from politics. Right, Nanda, were you going to say something? You were. Uh, no, I mean, I, I just like I'm I'm from Miami, so I, I I understand the 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 propaganda. Like, it's not uncommon to hear in in Miami some things like comparing Castro like on the same exact moral plane as Hitler. Like, that's just, that's very common. Yeah. Like, it's like, he's, he's Hitler to us. He's the exact same thing, you know? Right. Um, so I, like, I, I, I understand where that kind of, you know, indoctrination comes from. Can I share a quick story with you guys? Um, because yeah. it really does like emphasize that indoctrination. So there was a period of time where Jank was living in Miami. Um, he was working yeah. for Whammy. He was on Whammy. Um, Whammy. Whammy in right. Miami, baby. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So he shared this story a few times, actually, about um, the Elian Gonzalez era, right? Uh, oh, yeah. They wanted to send... A, so Elian Gonzalez's family in Cuba wanted him to come back to Cuba. Um, I don't remember the exact story. I, I think uh, while tr trying to get to the United States, the family member he was with uh, didn't survive, but he did. Yeah. Um, but long story short, uh, his Cuban family in Cuba wanted him to go back to Cuba. Cubans in Miami were against it. So there was like this mass protest happening in, in Florida and Jank was of the mind that, well, his living family members in Cuba want him back in Cuba, so they should send him back to Cuba. <laughs> Big mistake, Jank. Well, no, his father. It was well, most importantly, it was his father. Like his that's mom the, died. Oh, yeah. it was like, his it mom was like died his on the trip. His mom died. Yeah, and and it was his father who wanted him back in that's Cuba. Right. Um, and that's right. And it was right. like his aunt in Miami who was like, no fucking way. Uh, so it right. was it was it wasn't like there was like two competing uncles and aunts it was like his literal father was the one that wanted it back so that's like the important context there <laughs> yeah so jank yeah. ever the um provocateur shows up to this this protest <laughs> as like the one person who thinks elian gonzalez should be sent back to cuba and they start yeah. beating him up like they <laughs> uh, like they 
He had to be Straight. saved by the cops there. The cops had to no, save so, him because they like all was, ganged up on him. And- the, 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 the whole Elyon thing was like a big part of my childhood, obviously. And it was like, it, I, I remember perfectly, like the stories that came out, it was like, so he came over like on a, like on a raft or whatever. And, uh, you know, his mom died on the way and then he was alone on the raft. And the stories that were like, people told themselves was that like, a, a pack of dolphins surrounded the raft and protected Elyon from like the sharks that were circling and stuff like that. He was like, he became almost like this kind of Jesus figure um, yeah. at the time. And I remember like, it, it's, it's hard to describe just how big of an issue this was at the time. Like it was crazy. Even in New York, it was a, it was a huge thing. Cause obviously in New York, we have a lot of um, a, a huge Latinx population and there's a decent amount of Cubans too. Um, so it was a huge story in New York, but I'll tell you guys what I remember about the alien story. I remember basically he had the option of staying um, if it had it not been for his father wanting him back in Cuba. And then I remember maybe like a few weeks or a few months later, some Haitian refugees washed up on shore and they just sent them right back. <laughs> oh, they sent them right back. Yeah, they sent them right back. Get that's your that's ass back to Haiti. Thing. That's the amazing thing. Like whenever I hear Republican Cubans in South Florida utter any anti-immigration commentary, I, it like makes me want to rip my hair out. Because it's like, what do you think made you so special, right? You get to show up and you get amnesty. It's amnesty, right? Well, they just Um, get like one foot, dry foot, one, one, one foot on dry land. And you you immediately get papers. Like, you know, it's like a path to, uh, yeah, uh, normal immigration status. Yeah. And, and yeah, so they just, and I'm talking about a very specific group of people. They just think like, no, 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 but we're special. Like we get to just show up and immediately get accepted um, as U.S. citizens, whereas every other immigrant, especially people coming from impoverished countries, um, gets turned away. In the case of Donald Trump, all of them immediately uh, get prosecuted, even if they're seeking asylum. You know, it's like a blanket policy. It's just it's well, frustrating. And, and another thing, because a lot of things you'll hear um, from the the sort of refugee Cuban immigrant community is, you know, they found freedom in America, mind you. Um, these pe- a, a, Many of these people, the first generation of people that moved over here after the revolution moved into Jim Crow, Florida, right? <laughs> but they yeah. called it freedom. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, yeah. it was like, yeah. no freedom for them. Obviously not, you know, but it's, it's, it's just one of those things. I, I'm somebody who rolls my eyes at the entire just discussion that that discussion because i'm just like you know you guys get to access whiteness so obviously um you don't feel like immigrants you get to be white so you know yeah that's just what that is yeah anyway kale who do you who are you dating who are you seeing now uh i'm not actually at the moment um you hear that you hear that you hear that viewers yeah, no. he is available. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Slide into the DMs. Uh, maybe, maybe throw in a super chat. <laughs> maybe super chat into Kale's oh, DMs, you know, man. like you might respond. Yeah. <laughs> Use the super chat function, folks. Um, yeah. Kale is bright red right now. <laughs> 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 oh, Kale. Uh, I'm sorry. On, on the discussion of normies, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to add that uh, 
keeping keeping us on one final note of of socialism before we head out um that uh you know an organizer someone like us someone who's extremely political um doesn't need to make other people like us and so like even the immediate people in our lives like don't have to be exactly like us like that I think I think what what everyone's already said basically is that like the relationships you have, whether it's romantic or friendships or otherwise, like most of them probably should just be like decent normal people. Like at the very least, like people that you actually like bond over with real things. Like that it can't just be politics. And in fact, like again, like when you're organizing people, uh, whether it's you know some kind of propagandistic means like what we're doing or it's a workplace thing or uh, on a campaign, you're knocking on doors like me for Bernie six months after the fact Um, that, um, (laughs) that uh, (laughs) thank you. Um, It's the the point isn't to like turn everyone into you. It's not to turn everyone into a full blown socialist. Like you relate over extremely like, uh, you relate over people's interests. You relate over like real, like human, like needs and means, and uh, you know that, like, like what we were saying, like before, of like how to convince someone to come to your side. It's yeah, it's over like it's building real relationships. Gonna meet them. It's all, gonna meet meet them. them where they're at. Yeah, and it's and it's not gonna happen all at once. Um, and yeah, also say like, you know if you can have that in a relationship, great. But also like if you're fighting over politics in a relationship, like, you know, it, it might, the politics might not be the thing that's actually driving the fighting, but it's the expression of it. Mm. And tying those things together is, it's not helpful if you are a political person. So, right. Um, I don't know. Be safe. Yeah. Date nice no, people. I took a, this is going to sound, this is going to sound really embarrassing. Forgive me. But I did this like executive media course at Columbia. Like it was like part of like my old job or whatever. And I did it for a year. And part of it, they, 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 they taught us a class on negotiation by this like absolutely like totally like fascist caricature of a a human being. But like, it was actually really interesting. But like one of the things he talked about is how to like, what's the, what are the best techniques to convince people? And it actually rang like incredibly true to me. It's like, you can, first of all, it's almost impossible to convince people of anything that have already hardened their views. It's really, really difficult. The only thing you can hope for is to plant a little seed of doubt in their mind. And then that little seed over time convinces themselves like they it's they have to convince themselves like you're never gonna like deliver the perfect argument that's gonna be like well all that stuff i just believed i'm throwing out the window and i'm just believing all that you believe you can you can ask them a question that seeds a little bit of doubt in their mind and that's what over time will maybe get them to change their kind of very hardened uh worldview and the guy he always said was like the master of this was bill clinton um, which was, I always thought was kind of funny mm. that he was like, uh, that he was like very good at like listening to someone who was like giving him a spiel, like at stuff. Yeah. And he's like, Oh, that's very interesting that what you say, like, but have you ever thought of like blah, blah, blah. And then he would leave like, like also walking away is like a, an important thing. Like if, like if you belabor the point, you're just going to harden them back. So like planting a seed in their doubt and then walking away and, and just kind of like leaving them with the, like, wait, uh, uh, I hadn't thought of that. Oh shit. Also, I, I think that, almost apathetic messaging is more effective than 
passionate messaging. Because I feel like psychology, like human psychology, and I could be totally wrong about this. If someone comes at me with like an impassioned argument, that's free. Nobody likes that. Yeah, yeah, it comes. It's across unattractive. Like, I'm sorry, being yeah. desperate and foaming at the mouth is unattractive to people. Exactly. People can just sense the desperation. It's just like, yo, chill, relax. Yeah, and that's why, like, out of out of everyone who would argue with me about capitalism, Michael's approach was the most effective because Michael he he really was one of the best broadcasters because he never came at you with like he was never judgmental. First of all, met you where you're at. And didn't come at you with like this hyper impassioned, like angry rant. He just kind of like, he, he planted seeds. He definitely planted seeds. And he would make people want to learn more on their own. And then once you start doing your own reading, independent of like, you know, the mainstream narrative on things, you can't help but accept what the reality is, right? We live mm. under a system that like, the inequality we're experiencing is not a bug. It is the feature. We, this is what capitalism does. And it, there's mm-hmm. no escaping it, you know? Um, and believe me, other people tried to have, have the same conversation with me. They just approached it differently. And it made me want to reject them outright when they came at me with like a, a judgmental tone, antagonistic tone, or even an overly passionate tone. Just have a conversation with me. I'm a reasonable person. Um, but if you're trying too hard, you're coming across as super desperate. You're right, Waz. I, I'll just immediately dismiss them. Yeah, you have to know your audience. You have to, and you have to Definitely. be willing to like convince someone that it's not going to be instant. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to, because I was just reading this recently, uh, more kind of on the workplace side of things, is this great book called mm. "The Emergence of a UAW Local" by Peter Friedlander, and it's kind of an ethnographic study, but it's basically like how a couple of oh, is it an ethnographic study kale it's an ethnographic study okay cool what i love kale so much <laughs> you're so smart like you're such a catch kale. well okay so i'm glad you said that kale is not is only looks but brains and brawn all uh, total package i thought i was the only idiot on the call i was like i do not know what an ethnographic study is yeah, tell us. It's um, it's uh, it's about some people, and they're not all the same. And they come together around their shared class interests, and they form a union. And if only we could do more of that. Mm. Uh, it's 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 a really good read, and I can assure you, Waz, that you're not the only idiot on the stream by far. <laughs> but, <laughs> Um, the other one is me. <laughs> no, not no, at all. We have the best uh, people, guys. We have the best, the best. people. Don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone, the people best are belts. saying it. I need, I need, I'm not wearing a belt. I need one of the Trump belts. Uh, you know, the Trump <laughs> military belts. People the want to fashion note. designers. <laughs> On that note, we should all probably right. wrap. But uh, yeah, people, super chat questions next week because we got to get Nando a belt. We get, everyone's yes. got to get the big, yep. beautiful belts. The big, beautiful the belts. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you to Waz. Uh, make sure you check out uh, his work over at The Athletic. Waz, where can people find you on social media? Uh, B-I-G-W-O-S on every single social media platform. I tend to tweet about sneakers and, and NBA. Yeah. And sometimes I'll yeah. get into some Let's go. He- stuff. Um, the other night I watched uh, My Best Friend's Wedding 
I live tweeted that Julia Roberts plays Satan incarnate in that movie, but it's a very subversive rom-com. I encourage everybody to watch it, but that's what you can find when you follow me on social. Sounds (laughs) fun. (laughs) I'm a fun guy. What can I say? You are. You definitely are. All right. Um, Thank you everyone for watching. As always, we'll be back next weekend with another episode of Weekends. Have an awesome week. We'll see you soon. Thank you.